Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Paul Donovan joins us with UBS, their global chief economist, and just a wonderful perspective on the Pacific Rim. The upside surprise, Paul Donovan, has been China. I want to go back to the UBS heritage of Jonathan Anderson from years ago and the UBS expertise. I don't want to know about Hong Kong or Shanghai or Beijing, Paul Donovan. What does UBS see in the rest of China we never speak of? So the Chinese economy, we saw this morning with the industrial production data, production is kicking back in. China is, is a very interesting comparison to what we're seeing in Uh, the US and in Europe. Because in the US and Europe, what's happened is consumers saved money during lockdown. And then as lockdowns have ended, they've started to spend it because that's what consumers do. But in China, the consumer was less able to save money. So the domestic economy was sort of a little bit on a back foot as it came out of lockdown. Unless you were middle class, you didn't really have savings to spend. But what's now happening, of course, is that we're seeing global consumer demand picking up. And that's working its way up the supply chains. And we're seeing these better production numbers coming out of China, um, beating expectations. I don't have a lot of faith that the expectation is particularly accurate. You know, the range of forecasts right. is very wide, but certainly a decent number coming out reflecting that improvement in global activity. OK, you can extrapolate it to Australia and John Farrell's mortgage the house long Australia here into the end of the year. Can you extrapolate it to the rest of the world? Can you extrapolate Chinese better over to America and over to the continent of Europe? I think it has to be taken uh, uh, looking at both sides. So uh, China is a link in global supply chains. It's now the world's largest manufacturer. Um, uh, It's a key part of of global supply chains. So if we're seeing better production in China, if we're seeing improvements in the export numbers, that is telling us something about global levels of demand. And we're seeing it also come through in terms of proper indications about confidence in the economy. You're not these useless surveys, but detailed uh, behavior of consumers, of individuals in Europe and the US is pointing towards a better economic outlook. And this is always the case. Markets are always, always too pessimistic about recovery from a crisis. This was no different to previous crises. The markets have failed to understand the speed of the bounce back, the resilience of consumers and uh, businesses in the face of a challenge. Paul, is there anything unique about the willingness of many people to still underappreciate this rebound in this economy? So I think we've got some complications here. Um, So we've got problems with the data itself. I mean, the the data quality has been deteriorating for several years, but it's, it's been really, really bad during this crisis. And we're now seeing the inconsistencies in the data. So the fact that different countries use different methods to calculate GDP, your only economists get excited about this most of the time. But now it's leading to these absolute anomalies in the data when you do international comparisons. So that's throwing up a lot of problems. But also, of course, what's happening throughout all of this is the pandemic has accelerated the structural changes of the fourth industrial revolution and also the environmental credit crunch. Both of those 
big, big structural issues have been sped up throughout this. And that means, of course, that we may be failing to capture some of what's going on in the economy. So to give just one example, we have seen an absolute surge in business creation in America, in the UK, in France, in uh, uh, Japan, in Singapore, huge, huge increase in business creation since lockdowns ended. That's not likely to be properly reflected in the data. You know, some of the entrepreneurship is just going to be missed because the statisticians aren't going to be looking for it. So do you think that right now going forward, we're going to see ongoing improvement in the data? Or do you think that with the pullback in fiscal support, we'll see a plateauing? I mean, do you think that right now people are still getting it wrong and expecting a cool down in the recovery? So there will be a cool down. I mean, let's be realistic. What's what's really fueling this is the fact that most people accumulated about a month's worth of income in savings whilst they were stuck in lockdown, unable to do anything. And of course, as soon as lockdown ends, you know, you've just spent you know, whatever it is, two months stuck at home with you know, your, your close family as, as companions. You're desperate to get out and get away from them. And they go out and spend money. And that's what's happening. And that's the surge of the third quarter. Now, that's not going to last. It's like a tax rebate. You know, within six months, this money is going to be gone. And we're then back into a more normal pattern of growth. But I think that that will um, still be fairly resilient because the labor market is bouncing back more strongly. And we do get fiscal support, particularly in Europe, obviously, but also potentially in the States next year. The other thing to remember is, of course, that we've been seeing an awful lot of upward revisions to numbers. So once uh, business got a bit back to normal, we saw statisticians being able to go out and collect data a bit more reliably. And so in both Europe and in the United States, there's been a lot of upward revisions, sort of the, the revision index, which looks at, at revising data, has been ticking up since lockdown ended. And that's also telling us that actually things weren't quite as bad as we thought in the second quarter. The other aspect of this, and you wrote an essay on this that I thought was fascinating, was that you believe home working actually boosts growth. Can you talk a little bit about that, especially if that growth may not be in the big cities that traditionally were the economic engines? So I think the first point about this is this was going to be happening anyway. The technological changes, the, the changes of the fourth industrial revolution, fascinating from an economic point of view, in many ways reverses the social shifts of the first industrial revolution. You know, we're leaving the cities and going back to you know, rural areas or out of town. But what that does, of course, is it changes patterns, it changes work time. So you know, I'm not traveling to work on London Underground, spending half an hour to and from work every day stuck on the central line. My daily commute, if I'm working here from home, is me stumbling five yards from my bedroom to my home office. That's it. So I'm saving myself an hour a day. And what am I doing with that? Well, you know, I'm looking for entertainment. I'm looking for leisure. And I may spend money in doing that. And this, of course, is, is been the progression throughout the 20th century. Lord Keynes very famously wrote that we'd all be working 15-hour uh, days by the year 2030. I'm sure that's that's true for Tom, but your average economist is not working a 15-hour <laughs> day. We're, we're, we're really having to push the hours in. So Keynes was looking at this big, big drop in terms of the amount of time that people were spending at work. And it happened. But it happened because we spent less time doing chores outside of work, less time doing housework, less time commuting, and we had more leisure. 
that's what's going to come out of this, I think. Homeworking is not something to be shunned. It changes the structure of the economy, but it changes it in a good way, which gives people more free time and it gives them the opportunity to spend money in different ways and to raise their standard of living. John, it's just amazing that Paul Donovan in this pandemic has graduated from the Muhammad El-Aryan Pile on Tom School. He sees right through you. He's summa he cum laude. He knows. 15-hour week, pretending he does a 70. Just tell everyone. Go on, go. You want me to go? Okay, I'll go. Paul Donovan, what's Please. so important here <laughs> in the time we're in, and there's such a respect for the holistic nature of your research reports. What do we need to focus on on global trade? I mean, Stiglitz talks about the globalization and our discontent and all that. What's the thing forward on world trade we need to focus on? So globalization, the the rise of global trade as a share of GDP, that's over. That's done. Um, Because the globalization story of the last 25 years was about increasingly complex, increasingly long supply chains. And that's no longer desirable. And again, this is a change. It's not being brought about by the pandemic. It's being accelerated by the pandemic. And we're now, I think, going to see a fairly steady decline in global trade as a share of GDP. But there are two possible ways this happened, and they have very, very different implications. If we go down the route of trade taxes, tariffs, that is not good news. Because that is telling companies, right, you've chosen the best possible location for your production. We're going to force you to go to somewhere that's second best. No company wants to go to second best. That's less efficient. That's going to lead to either squeezed profits or higher prices for the consumer or some combination. But if we see automation, robotics, digitization coming in, then what that is going to be doing is leading to localization of production. You start producing close to the consumer because it is efficient to do so. And that's going to be a very, very different situation because that means lower prices for the consumer or higher profits for the producer or some combination Mm -hmm. of the two. So what we've got to focus on is, look, globalization, as we've recorded it, it's going into reverse. There is a negative story around trade taxes and autarky and all that sort of stuff. But there's also a positive story about it's just more efficient to be producing closer to the consumer because of the technological changes. And so working out which of those two options is predominant, that's going to be key. The shortest nine-minute interview we've ever done. Paul, it just went too quickly. We've got to do it much, much longer next time. Paul Donovan, great to catch up. UBS Global Chief Economist. Speak of the American economy, Lindsay Piegza joins us right now with Stiefel, their chief economist. Lindsay, John Farrell brought up 20 minutes ago the idea of the all-in United Kingdom unemployment rate. What is the all-in U.S. unemployment rate? Is it double digit? It could be. Right now, of course, we know that the civilian rate, the rate reported from the BLS, has come down to 8.4. And we do know that there has been vast improvement from that peak that we saw early on in the pandemic. But we don't know if that's fully capturing what's been happening out in the labor market. As you said, the true unemployment rate is much likely to be closer to that double digit range. But as we wait for the Fed's decision later this week, tomorrow exactly, uh, we do think that the Fed is going to emphasize that improvement that we've seen in the labor market, that further growth that we've seen in terms 
terms of hiring, that further decline in the unemployment rate, as well as the decline in jobless claims. So the Fed is going to be focusing on the improvement that we've seen, as opposed to some of that uh, that, that more tertiary or, or secondary uh, numbers that suggest a higher level of joblessness in the U.S. labor market. And, and then they're going to get to the November 5 Fed meeting, which I assume is going to be a virtually silent meeting just with respect to the American election. We may not even have results uh, by then. Lindsay, I want you to take us out to December and into 2021. What's the economic run rate right now? Right now, the economy does seem to be improving. We are seeing improvement, as I mentioned, in the labor market, in the housing market. We've seen improvement in the manufacturing numbers. So it does suggest that the U.S. economy is rebounding from that extremely low level that we saw in the second quarter. But I hesitate to say that we're in the position for a V-shaped recovery. As the Fed has pointed out, COVID remains the number one risk to the outlook. So we can't get complacent at this point yet. There still is a tremendous amount of risk that the virus poses to the economy that it poses to the outlook. And if we need to, we should remain very vigilant uh, in terms of the safety protocols, in terms of wearing masks, social distancing in order to keep the economy open and continuing to move towards that point of full employment. But I, I don't think we're there yet. And we do run the risk of a second wave of cases, a second round of layoffs, which could keep the economy very anemic going into 2021. And this is exactly why the Fed has said that they're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates at this point. Interest rates are likely to stay in this very near zero range, this very low range for uh, the foreseeable future for several years to come. Well, Lindsay, let's talk about how they manage that message tomorrow then, because tomorrow, surely the unemployment forecast has to get an upgrade given where unemployment has come down to. Absolutely. Uh, we do get that summary of economic projections, and the unemployment rate is likely to be lowered in terms of the Fed's forecast, reflecting the improvement that we have seen in the labor market. I wouldn't expect much change around the inflation figure. I wouldn't expect much more optimism to be priced in in terms of their GDP forecast. But you're right, the unemployment rate their forecast is likely to come down again, reflecting that improvement. But I think it's more important what we hear from the chairman during the press conference. And he's going to be very careful to walk that line between patting the Fed on the back, saying the swift and decisive action that we took helped stem a further downturn. So the, the conditions that we saw in the second quarter could have been much more dire. And again, balancing that against the risk, as I mentioned, the virus still remains out there. Businesses have been able to stem that bridge uh, in, in terms of staying open for several months. But if we don't see a meaningful way of separating the healthy from the sick, or if we don't see additional fiscal stimulus to help uh, bridge that gap for businesses and the American families, it's going to be very difficult to keep the U.S. economy on this pathway back to a more prosperous and sustainable growth level. Lindsay, there seems to be a divergence between the C-suite in America and economists. The C-suite saying we're seeing better than expected business performance across the board. And you have economists saying, well, you do now, but as this fiscal uh, support runs off, you will see it lose a lot of luster. Have economists lost credibility in a meaningful way? Or are, are they looking at something that perhaps the C-suite isn't seeing? 
I think right now, I think most of management, uh, most of corporate America is focused on the, the near-term outlook. And they're focused on the minimal improvement that we have seen from those low levels at the onset of the pandemic. I think economists are taking more of a longer-term picture, a longer-term view of where the economy is headed. Remember, the economy was already losing momentum as we were heading into 2020. We had slowed from a 3% growth rate down to 2%, yet corporate America was still elated with the prospects of a continuing the expansion. So economists were already recognizing that loss of momentum. And I think that loss of momentum has carried through and kept the economy in this extremely fragile position. Then you layer on this pandemic, and it's going to be increasingly difficult for us to get back to a more sustainable, organic level of growth. So it could also be that corporate America has become complacent with this uh, unprecedented support from monetary and fiscal uh, policies. Okay, so if we don't get another fiscal round of support, where do you see the year ending uh, with respect to the U.S. unemployment rate? I do think that it's going to remain elevated in this 8 to 9 percent level. I don't think we push back towards that double-digit level that we saw, again, at the onset of the pandemic. But the labor market still is under an extreme amount of pressure. Again, businesses have been able to recall some workers. We have been able to see some new payrolls created. But if we don't see additional fiscal stimulus, if we don't see additional federal funding, if we don't see that vaccine, it's going to be difficult to continue these conditions that have allowed businesses to take on those new hires or to rehire some of those workers that have been pushed to the sidelines. So we could actually see a second wave of layoffs or furloughs towards the end of the year, which would keep that mm. unemployment rate artificially high in that eight to 9% range. Lindsay Piegza, yesterday, William Gross, talked about a $6 trillion need, a $6 trillion deficit call. Others have, you know, come up about that number as well. We're talking one and two trillion as an arguing point. Are we able to go out and find three or four or five or six trillion of new debt to fold onto the American balance sheet? I think we could. The question is, do we want to? Uh, we have to be very careful. We want to make sure that we're providing enough stimulus in the near term to get the economy back on track. But we also don't want to create additional barriers on the back end when the economy does begin to recover. Are we... Uh, are we struggling under this insurmountable amount of debt uh, that creates future barriers uh, for growth and, and future generations? So I do think it's a, it's a delicate balance. We want to make sure, again, that we get the economy back on track, but not just in the short term, that we're putting it on a longer term trajectory towards a higher level of prosperity. Lindsay, how delicate is that balance right now? And I ask that in all seriousness with 10-year yields at the moment at 0.68%. I think it's extremely delicate. As we've seen, the deficit, the total debt held by the American public at record levels. In fact, debt to GDP is the highest level that we've seen in post-World War II history. So we are on an unsustainable trajectory in terms of continuing to load debt onto the balance sheet. That being said, there's not much we can do during these unprecedented times. We have to take on additional debt, but we don't need to be irresponsible about it. We want to make sure that the programs that the federal government is putting into, into play is going to those that yeah. need it, is going to the businesses that need it to, to uh, continue to bridge this gap. We don't want uh, fraud or we don't want abuse of these programs. <clears throat> That's very important at this point. And I think the American public has a, a much lower tolerance at this point for any sort of fraud around mm. those programs, given what we did see with the first round in the PPP program as well. Oh, absolutely. I think most people would agree with that sentiment. Lindsay, great to catch up. Lindsay Piexa there of Stiefel.
Robert Perfusek is with Jones Day. He's head of mergers and acquisitions, but that barely describes his decades, his many decades experience in all different shades of M&A. We're thrilled he could join us again. Uh, Bob, it's been way, way, way too long uh, since you've been on. What's different this time around in the many billions of the M&A Derby? Well, the biggest difference, I think, is uh, obviously the markets have been fabulous uh, in many respects. Everybody focuses on the uh, uh, equity capital markets, but the debt markets are just mind-blowingly supportive. Now, you know, others on your show always talk about how that supports the equity markets, too. But it really is, is, a, is a great boon for M&A. Um, and, you know, if you, if you stand back over the, those decades, M&A generally tracks what the equity markets uh, uh, do. Um, and I think we're starting to see that. Now, you know, a lot of people say, well, yesterday is a one-off thing. Uh, TikTok is uh, political, not an economic event. Um, uh, uh, the uh, SoftBank deal, it was kind of a forced sale because of uh, other issues that, that the uh, SoftBank has. Well, yeah, that's true, but there was a lot of other stuff. All the headline deals got, of course, the headlines, but there were many other deals that were announced, yeah. uh, including, including a deal for Verizon, the New York Mets, there are all sorts yeah. of stuff. So it's, it's much more active, no question about it. Well, that's great. Are we at the point, uh, Robert Pifusek, where we're seeing transactions so the other guy doesn't get the company, like Steve Cohen goes out and takes a Mets so Larian can't buy him? I mean, are we at that point across all of M&A? Well, it, yes. We're, we're, we're at a, M&A is strategic right now. There's, there's a lot of financial transactions. In fact, I, I, at least in my, my personal uh, world, it started for, uh, to pick up again in August with some uh, private equity deals. But it's mostly strategic. Um, you'll, I don't think that if this deal probably was not even mentioned yesterday, the Verizon deal. Um, and that's a not a huge deal, at least by comparison to the others. But it was almost seven billion, and it's and it's uh, designed to build out a part of the Horizon's platform they don't have the prepaid phone. Robert, uh, prepaid cards. For sure, there are a lot of deals that are strategic and looking to buy revenue at a time of meager growth. But things have gotten a lot more political, and I'm wondering how much TikTok is representative of the increasingly politicized M&A backdrop versus a sort of idiosyncratic affair. Uh, there's no question that nationalism um, is a factor. Uh, you wouldn't have said this, uh, you know, before the current administration, but. Um, it isn't just the U.S., um, and nationalism is a real issue in terms of cross-border deals. Um, n no question about it. Um, and how we deal with uh, how we deal with this stuff going forward uh, could have an impact. It, whenever a significant cross-border transaction shows up in the boardroom, you get a lot of directors kind of you know, saying, oh, "Gee, do we really want to go through this?" Because because um, it, it is a factor. Um, the, the, the yeah. TikTok deal is, is unique, but but it's, this is a real issue with cross-border deals, which, of course, is most deals have some element of that.
But, Bob, it may, may well push bigger companies to get with bigger companies. Now, I know there's been regulatory issues, antitrust issues down in Washington, D.C. around big tech. But let's think about how this story is evolving. In Europe, there's a huge conversation about whether they should move away and move towards from this national champions to European champions that can compete with China and compete with heavyweights in the United States as well. And I wonder if that's something that grips the United States to push forward and allow the big to get bigger through acquisition so they can compete with Chinese companies. Bob, how are you thinking about that at the moment? Uh, that's that's an interesting uh, topic for, a, for a, frankly, a kind of a law school debate. Um, I don't think uh, that that, that has, maybe has more traction in, in the EU um, because the EU, obviously, is the EU. It thinks about things in, those, in that way. Um, and, you know, there's been rumors again recently about um, – uh, UBS and Credit Suisse, you know, and obviously that would raise regulatory and other issues, but maybe that would be something that would fall into the, that kind of category. The U.S. is different. Um, it, yeah, politics plays a role, and when the president says something about a deal, the, the staff people who deal yeah. with these things think about it, but, but it, it really works out in a much more, much more granular, uh, technical way uh, in the U.S. It's it's done by people who are largely apolitical. I know that's hard to believe in today's world, but you know, these are many, in many cases, career uh, staff people who are trying to do the right thing rather than po- follow the political winds. I'm just wondering how quickly that changes. Bob, it's great to catch up with you, as always. Robert Fusek there, Jones Day, Head of Mergers and Acquisitions. Right now, a two-hour conversation with Scott Stringer. He went to the Bella, Bella Absug School of Charm and became a politician on the island of Manhattan, has been comptroller, and now will run for mayor. There's 47 things to talk to him about. And, of course, we're the Shanali Basak of Bloomberg uh, as well, because there's a lot to talk about right now. Scott, I must start with your aspiration to be the mayor of this great city. What is the Stringer plan to drag this city out of this pandemic? Well, that is the number one priority is we're going to have to do a lot at the same time. One, we have to use our financial chops to slowly and carefully turn the economy on. I would argue that we can't turn the economy on the same way we closed it. We have to be more thoughtful about how we invest in infrastructure, how we invest in the neighborhoods that have just been ripped apart by COVID. So the next mayor is going to have to govern in a serious way to get this economy going. For me, the priority has to be closing budget deficits in a way that spurs economic development and growth in all of our communities. And it's something I'm thinking about, not just as a mayoral candidate, but as controller of the chief financial officer of the city. Within the liberal ethos of New York City, can you go after the rich? People. My view is, look, here's the state of play. We have a $4.2 billion deficit in our city budget for next year. It's tough, but manageable. So we have to use all the levers at our disposal to close that budget gap. So, for example, we have billions of dollars in reserves. We can draw down on those uh, reserves. We have the opportunity to find more efficiencies in our agencies. Our mayor has never gone through an exercise looking to save money year in and year out. So there's a lot that we can do simply by being good auditors and saving hundreds of millions of dollars. I also have put on the table, as we should, uh, people of great wealth who did great in this city over the last 10, 20 years, they should be prepared, if necessary, to step up and help out as well. When that happens 
and we have a balanced approach to balancing the budget, then we're on to something. But everyone has to help. And I would make the argument that we in New York City have watched heroes every single day. This pandemic started with us. Uh, we saw frontline workers going uh, to save lives. They didn't have masks. They didn't have protection. They went out. Some people lost their lives. And I think the business community, you know, come on, step up. It, it's, it, we need your we're all in this together. Do you have any concerns about members of the business community, members of the wealthier class in New York, leaving New York should you raise taxes on them? Look, we've had a fiscal crisis uh, as far back as the 1970s when I was growing up. When, in fact, my, you're right, my cousin Bill Abzug ran for mayor of New York City. People fled. I remember they left as a kid. They came back. Uh, after 9-11, people fled, but they came back. After 2008 recession, people left. They came back. There will be some that will leave, but everyone, at the end of the day, wants to be in the center of the universe. No disrespect to London. They want to live in New York City. The next mayor has to continue to build on quality of life, economic stability, and also reimagine what the city can look like, whether it's transportation or helping communities most in need. And once that happens, I believe people are going to come roaring back here. And by the way, what I would say to people with a lot of money, why would you risk your life going to Texas or Florida? or any place where you have governors who, uh, who, who just ignore health, uh, health safety laws, you gotta be nuts to go there. Stay where you are. New York City is the safest place in the world right now. But the thing is, people were moving there even before the pandemic had even started and before there was a greater push for these taxes. And I'm wondering, there are some executives in the financial industry now that are talking about moving some of their jobs there to potentially lower cost locations for their employees. Are you concerned about that realistically? What can we do to keep the New York City jobs um, in the financial industry? Well, look, we have to continue to build a city that attracts business, attracts entrepreneurship. We have to invest in our tech community. We're starting to do that. Life sciences has always been something that has been a foundation for a future economy. We've got to build our schools and invest in our universities because that's why young people from around the world want to come and get educated here. And when they come here, they always stay here. So we need a strong plan to make sure that we have a robust business community. But we also have to remind ourselves that we have 66,000 small businesses in New York City. They employ 700,000 people. I don't want to see them get squeezed or lost. You know, I do have great expectation that Amazon is going to do just fine and Facebook will do just fine. For me, we have to double down on our small businesses, those middle businesses that can mean the difference of people fleeing or people staying. But we need a mayor with a plan and somebody who has the strength of uh, management chops to get us through these very tough times. Yeah, Mr. Stringer, I don't know if I've missed it. I want to go you know, back to some of the cost inefficiencies you're talking about. But first, would you raise taxes for the wealthy? I said that we should put everything on the table. Wealthy people, if needed, should pay a little more to get us through this crisis. We have asked our frontline workers to make the ultimate sacrifice. Seems reasonable that people who have great wealth would want to help the city where they, a city in which they made money at. Uh, I don't understand this notion of throwing your hands up and running away. This is the time to stay and fight. We build back the city. This is the city that made you great. It's the greatest city in the world. Let's all do it together. 
And let's all be heroes as we struggle to get our deficit under control and our economy under control. Look, without New York City, the national economy will struggle. We send $22 billion more to our federal government than we get back. And all we're asking for on a federal level is a stimulus package that recognizes the political, uh, not the political, but certainly the economic might of New York City. So you were mentioning spending inefficiencies. Where, how much can you save by, well, by getting that back in order? I, I estimate that you could spend, you could save up to five hundred million to one billion dollars, depending on how deep you go with those efficiencies. Again, these are not layoffs; these are not uh, efficiencies that would hurt essential services. We have that much fat in our budget. I've done the audits of all the agencies; it exists. We have to flush it out and then reinvest that money in the things that we need to keep going, services in our city, but also to close our budget deficit. You know, here's the deal. In my office, we did a 4% cut. I returned millions of dollars from the controller's office, gave it to the city general fund without them even asking. And it's not that hard. You take a scalpel, not a sledgehammer, you do the hard work of finding those efficiencies, and then you bring them into the general fund to offset the deficit. The other thing mm -hmm. that I've offered to do with the mayor is do the kind of refinancing of our city debt. We have low interest rates. I estimate that we can realize $400 million in financing, perhaps another $500 million next year. So there's a lot that we can do to stem the tide. It's not just raising taxes. That could be a component. It's not just borrowing, but that could be a component. We have a lot sitting out there to get this deficit under control. We just need the political will. We just need to get to work and, and do the savings. To what extent are we facing a New York City that's like the 1970s? Today, we're not. Uh, what I worry about is that we could create our own 1970s story if we don't take decisive action. But we are not on the edge of bankruptcy. Look, I still believe that even with all of the saving measures I'm talking about on your show today, Biden will become president. We will have a real stimulus package that will help government, uh, local and state governments. That's ultimately the way we get out of this. But in the meantime, New York City will do its share, as will, I'm sure, other localities around the country. You know, Donald Trump has given up on his hometown long before the pandemic, and he has been the chief architect of literally poisoning hundreds of thousands of people. And that era hopefully comes to an end politically. We just have to hold on until help is on the way, and hopefully that will come in November. Mr. Stringer, thank you so much. Scott Stringer is a New York City Comptroller. Son Ali Basic, thank you so much uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.